0: In this episode of 2,000 Books, Bo Burlingham shows us the five keys to make your company great. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2,000 Books. Every Monday and Wednesday, we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs, books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, personal development, and much, much more. And I am your host, Manny Vaya. Bo Burlingham was the editor-at-large at Inc. Magazine and currently writes for Forbes where he has set the criteria for the best small companies in America. He has been writing about entrepreneurship for the last 34 years and has written five books on the topic, The Great Game of Business, Street Smarts, A Stake in the Outcome, Finish Big, and the book we're talking about today, Small Giants, Companies That Choose to Be Great Instead of Big. Bo, I'm really excited to have you on the show and pick your brain on what makes a company great. So, welcome.
1: It's great to be here, Money.
0: Thank you. I am a fan of the book, and one of the big reasons for that book being such an important book for me is the fact that we talk about ambition in a different way. It's not always about the ambition to grow bigger, but ambition to do something great, which doesn't always coincide with being big. So tell us, why do you think an ambitious entrepreneur needs to read this book, listen to this book from your perspective?
1: Well, I think that you sort of put your finger on it right there, Mani. Namely, I think that everybody who certainly starts a business or buys a business, for that matter, runs a business, ought to at some point early on ask themselves a question, namely, what exactly does it mean for a company to be great? Different people will have different answers to those questions, but it's the importance of sort of focusing on that question because, as you said, being great and getting big are sort of two totally different things. Mm -hmm. And just because you're getting bigger doesn't mean you're getting better. And so I think what the companies that I wrote about in Small Giants do is that they sort of, when you read about them, they make you ask the question of yourself, well, what do I think is a great business?
0: And I think that's that's really important right there. So let us define that. What is a small giant? What does it mean to build a great business? What was your criteria for selecting these small giants? How do you define these great companies?
1: Actually Small Giants grew out of an article that I'd written for Inc. magazine on Zingermans, which is started out as a delicatessen in in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1982. And today it's a whole community of businesses called Zingerman's Community of Businesses that includes a number of other food-related businesses in the Ann Arbor area in addition to the delicatessen. And the way the book came about was that after writing that article, a publisher called me up and suggested, he liked the article and he suggested that Maybe there was a book in this. And at first, I didn't get it. But when we talked some more, I realized what he was talking about, namely companies that had had the opportunity to get a lot bigger, a lot faster, but had chosen not to because they had other goals that they considered more important. And I thought it was a great question. I mean, that was really what I had written about with Zingerman's. And I had no idea. I'd been at Inc. Magazine at that point for about 20 years or so. And I actually had no idea what the answer to the question was, whether or not there were other companies out there that had sort of faced a similar choice at some point and made similar decisions. And so I began going around and looking for companies. And I had a set of criteria that was, to some extent, based on Zingerman's. Number one, I wanted companies that had, you know, like Zingerman's, had gotten to a point where they had many options in terms of what they would do next. In Zingerman's case, they could have franchised, they could have raised private equity. There are all kinds of things they could have done. But they decided they didn't want to go national. That They'd set out to start a company that was great and unique. And once you start replicating something, it's no longer unique by definition. And a lot of times, it's not even very good, let alone great. Mm. And so they decided they didn't want to replicate Zingerman's delicatessence around the country. And the two founders spent a couple of years trying to think about, okay, well, what are we going to do? And eventually they came up with a plan. And the plan was to, instead of spreading out around the country, they would stay in the Ann Arbor area and they'd start other food-related businesses, each of which could be great and unique. And so I wanted companies that had sort of reached that stage where they actually, that was the first criterion, that they had an opportunity to get a lot bigger, a lot faster, but had chosen not to because they had other goals they considered more important. I also wanted companies that were generally regarded in their industries, even by their competitors, as being among the best at what they did. I mean, you know, if anybody put together a list of the great delicatessens in the world at that point, Zingerman's would have been on it and it still would be, for that matter, Zingerman's Deli. So that was something that I was looking for. The third criterion is that I wanted companies that had an impact outside their business, outside their industries, you know, in their communities or in society at large or whatever, that they had been recognized sort of by their, for their contributions by independent third parties. Mm-hmm. The fourth criterion is that I wanted companies that had been around long enough to experience the ups and downs of business and had managed to remain profitable through them for at least like 15, 20, 25 years or so. And then for the fifth characteristic, I thought I had to deal with the question of scale. You know, what exactly did I mean by a small company? And I realized that it really had to do not so much with revenues as with the relationship between the people at the top of an organization, the people who were just entering it or were on sort of the low rung of the ladder. In other words, if a company was still at a stage where the people at the top still had regular contact with other people throughout the organization and the people at the, at other levels of the organization Felt still they that they still had access to the uh, CEO and other major executives in the organization. That is what I call human scale. Mm. And so I, I wasn't exactly sure. I, I knew that it would probably vary from uh, company to company, but I, I I use that sort of general criteria as my standard for size. And then the f- sixth thing was a quality that actually I didn't have a name for when I started out writing the book. It's a concept that I actually got from one of the companies in the book, namely Cliff Bar. And that is what I call mojo in the book. And by mojo, I mean the business uh, equivalent of charisma. You know, when a leader has charisma, you want to follow him or her. When a business has mojo, you want to be associated with that business. You want to buy from it. You want to sell to it. You want to work for it. You want to wear t-shirts and caps. It's basically what you feel when you're in the presence of something that's very special in business. And uh, it's something that we all recognize it when we see it because we can feel it but it's somewhat harder to actually define what it is.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely, and you kind of define it in some ways in the book, throughout the book. It's almost it's a sense of excitement, optimism, joy uh, for the employees, for the business owner himself, that they're doing something new, they're creating a movement, or they're making something happen that's
1: exciting and fun. Exactly, and actually extends... Usually, to the customers and the suppliers as well, yeah, the suppliers really like doing businesses with these, and, and when they look at the various other companies that they do business with, this business sort of stands out, and the customers you know sort of feel the same thing actually right, that's a good way to define it
0: yeah and these are businesses that are almost as you say they're living for a higher purpose than just right. making more money right there's more to that business than that so let's talk about it. I, I want to dig deeper into the whole idea of mojo and where it comes from and i mean how we know it when we see it so one of the key ideas you presented in the book was uh the fact that the leaders know who they are and what they wanted out of the business seems like right. that's a really tough thing for a lot of leaders because the only thing that the society tells you to do is to make more money. And to get bigger.
1: Mm-hmm. It is a hard thing. But the fact is, is that most of the people I write about, the leaders that I write about, they, if they hadn't known who they were and what they wanted, they couldn't have made the decisions that they made. I mean, you know, for Zingerman's, Zingerman's had a golden opportunity and lots of people told them that they'd be crazy not to accepted because there were already people coming to them who wanted to start Zingerman's Delicatessence in other cities around the country. And so it would have been easy to franchise. And basically, when they went to other people for advice, most of the other people said, you know, you're nuts if you don't take advantage of this opportunity. But they knew they didn't want to do that. As Ari who who's one of the founders, put it, he didn't want to spend his life on an airplane flying to Sheboygan or Kansas City or wherever to inspect a mediocre Zingerman's and find out whether or not the coleslaw was fresh. That wasn't his idea of the way he wanted to spend his life. And because he had that clarity in his own mind, he and his partner were able to come to a very unique alternative. You know, you can also look at somebody like Gary Erickson, who is the founder of Cliff Bar, mm-hmm. which, you know, grew like crazy. It started in the late 1980s and It grew like crazy uh, in the 1990s. So there were actually three major players, Cliff Bar, Balance Bar, and Power Bar. And then in the late 1990s, rather, the um, Balance Bar and Power Bar were bought by Kraft and Nestle. So suddenly, he finds himself competing against these multi-billion dollar companies that had the power to do all kinds of things that he couldn't do. And people were telling him, you know, you better do something or you're just going to get crushed by these guys. And he had a partner at that point who he'd brought in and given her 50% of the stock. And they both agreed that this was a very hairy prospect that they faced. And then right about that time, uh, Quaker Oats came along and offered them $120 million for the business. And he was sort of wary about doing it. But, you know, when he brought his employees together and basically told them, look, we feel like we don't have any choice but to accept this offer. And we're doing it because we want to protect the brand and we want to protect your jobs. Well, you know, a couple of weeks before the closing, Quaker informed them that they intended to move the company from Berkeley, where it was based, to the Midwest, where Quaker was based. And that they didn't want either Gary or his partner to have anything to do with it after the sale. So suddenly he's in a situation where he has actually lied to his employees, and he he felt horrible about that. But you know these deals like this sort of take on a life of their own at, at a certain point. They develop this momentum. that's hard to turn around, and so the negotiations went forward, and the lawyers were you know, working out all the details. And then the day came when they were supposed to go over to their lawyer's office to uh, sign the papers. And, you know, the people from Quaker had flown in, you know, to do this, to do the deal. And Gary and his partner were standing in the office. And suddenly he began to get a panic attack, basically, where he was having trouble breathing and his hands we sweating and he told his partner, look, I've got to go take a walk around the block and get some fresh air. And as he walked around the block and it, he was thinking about what he was about to do and he was so upset about it that he actually began to cry. Then, you know, he walked a little further and he realized, well, wait a minute, I haven't signed anything yet. And suddenly he felt better. So he immediately went back to his office and talked to, told his partner, look, send everybody away. I'm not going to do this deal right now. That wasn't the easiest thing to do at that point because his partner really sort of wanted the $60 million Mm -hmm. that she would get. And he wound up having to assume that debt because he'd made her a 50% partner and not a 49% partner. She had the power to bring down the company. Mm. And so he worked out a deal with her where she would get her $60 million plus And everyone told him, everyone was telling him, you know, you are absolutely nuts because now not only do you have these two giant multi-billion dollar competitors, but, you know, you've also just saddled yourself with this huge amount of debt Mm -hmm. And, and you don't have, you know, it's like it's insane to do this, but he was convinced that this was what he wanted to do. And so he got the people of the company together and basically told them that he felt that they could still do this and everyone told him he was crazy not his own people his own people were relieved yeah but you know make a long story short in the next 3 years the company tripled in size and he managed to pay off his debt and you know the company thrived the point is is that you can't make a decision like that If you don't know who you are, what you want, and why. yeah, And those were the types of decisions that, you know, particularly when everyone's telling you you're nuts not to do this. It takes a certain amount of courage and clarity in your own mind to be able to make the right decision anyway.
0: Absolutely. This is such an important distinction here because for a lot of business owners, for a lot of entrepreneurs, a $60 million exit is a big win. I mean, that is... That is almost like stuff of stories. So for Ericsson to say, no, I don't really care about the money. I stand for what I truly stand for, and I will define the way we will do business, and I will define the way what I want out of this business. That is very courageous, and at the same time, very clear on his understanding. He was very clear as to what he wanted, and he stood true to it, and that's such a beautiful thing.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say that he didn't care about the money. He basically said, look, He realized, he said, well, I probably never see that much money again in my life. As it turned out, that's probably not true because the company has, even since I wrote about it, it's grown about 10 times. You know, when I wrote about it, when this all happened, it was doing about 40, 50 million dollars in sales. And today it's doing somewhere north of. 500 million in sales. And it's grown a tremendous amount. It's very, very profitable. And I think it's gotten a lot bigger and a lot stronger than Gary ever imagined it would be. I mean, he's still not going to sell it to a third party. He did sell a part of it, to his employees. Mm. They have an employee stock ownership plan, yeah. and that's the big deal.
0: I think the key distinction there was not the fact that he did not care about money, but that was not the first consideration that he had when it came to running the business.
1: That's correct. That That's absolutely true. Yeah, He didn't want to make the money if it meant walking away from Things he believed
0: in. Yeah, absolutely. He's true to his values and beliefs rather than the thought of $60 million. Yeah. Yeah. The next idea that you talk about, which kind of causes Mojo or which is an element of Mojo, is the fact that these are businesses and the founders are committed to be the best at what they do. And the story of Anchor Brewing is really cool about that. So tell us about that.
1: Well, Anchor was actually a very old company, it had been started in San Francisco during the gold rush and in the mid 19th century and it you know it'd been through all the earthquakes and fires and everything that had happened in the next 100 years and a young guy was named Fritz Maytag who was a graduate of Stanford he lived in San Francisco and there was a, a local bar that he went to and he liked to drink the Anchor Steam beer and then the bartender basically told him that he'd heard that Anchor was going to go out of business Fritz didn't want it to go out of business, so he went and he arranged his sale. He didn't wind up costing him very much money, a few thousand dollars, I think. And he wound up buying the beer. Of course, he knew nothing about making beer at that point. And one of the first things that he learned was that Anchor Brewing didn't follow the best practices when it comes to beer making. So he had to really sort of completely—he wanted to have very high-quality beer— And so he, you know, had to change a lot of things and he eventually came up with what is, in fact, the first real craft brew of the, you know, the whole craft brewing revolution. I mean, before he put anchor steam in bottles and began selling it that way. There really weren't craft brews that you know now are all over the place. I mean, there are probably a couple dozen in the San Francisco Bay Area alone. Mm -hmm. And so he started that, and Anchor Steam Beer became extremely popular. And its it's reputation grew, and the company began to grow. Demand for its product began to grow so much that he was actually having to ration customers because he didn't want to say to turn any of them away empty-handed but he couldn't fill all the demand that he had and that's a you know an odd situation to be in it actually was sort of an excruciating situation for fritz and he managed to get through that but then a little later on he could see that you know they came out with some more beers and the demand picked up again and he could see that he was heading toward a situation where he was going to have that situation again And he was scared, and he thought that, well, maybe what I need to do is build another brewery. And in order to do that, he'd have to raise capital. And he talked to people who were interested in something called a direct public offering. It's going public, but not in the typical way. And he got all ready to do that. And then right before they did it, he uh, sort of sat down with his senior staff and began talking about how their lives would change after they went public and how the company would have to change after they went public. And they agreed that they didn't want to make those changes, that basically they liked what they had. And so you know, he decided to stop the public offering. He didn't do it, but he got lucky because right around that same time, other craft brews began appearing in the Bay Area and around the country. And actually, he wound up helping a lot of them get started. I mean, they would come to him for advice, and he would talk to them about what he did and, and what he'd learned uh, being in the beer business. And, and a lot of them, you know, it, they became so successful that it sort of took the pressure off of Anchor. And it was, it, you know, it continued to grow, but it did not face a, another situation where it had to start rationing its product.
0: Yeah, he was committed to doing the best at being the best, not committed to just growing for the sake of growing.
1: That's true. His passion was traditional beer making. Every decision that he made, he believed that the best beer was made using traditional means and traditional equipment and everything. So like, for example, if you go into most breweries, they all have big stainless steel bins where they do the brewing but you go into Anchor Steam and they have the Anchor Brewing and they have these huge, beautiful copper bins where the brewing is done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a decision that it was more expensive to be sure, but it was a decision that he made because he wanted in all of his beers to use the traditional means, traditional techniques and the traditional equipment. And it made for great beer. I mean, obviously he won all kinds of awards and and inspired a lot of other people who saw that, you know, that this was a business worth getting into. Yeah, it's
0: like there are two ideas at play here. Not only did he have the commitment to be really good, to be the best at what he did, but he also loved what he did. The Anchor Brewing Company, like they loved what they do. They have utter passion for what they do, and they're not going to sacrifice quality standards or what they think is important just for the sake of growing bigger or making more money.
1: That's exactly right, and you know there are a whole lot of decisions that get made in accordance with that. In many cases, they're decisions that customers are not even aware of, but it does sort of have an important effect on the product that they're turning out.
0: Yeah. So, so we've been talking about quite a few keys to the mojo, we talked about how the leaders knew who they were and what they wanted out of the business. We talked about commitment to being the best. And then we also talked about loving what you do and having utter passion for the business. So really important components of mojo. However, the other side of the mojo is also this relationship with people and relationship with people from all different dimensions, relationships with the community, relationship with the customers, with the suppliers and with the employees, it's almost like thinking about the people they're affecting very consciously, very deliberately.
1: Well, that's very accurate. You know, when I started, I started out at Inc. in the early 1980s. And, you know, I was lucky to be in a situation where I was able to get to know a lot of the best companies and their leaders when they were still pretty young. You know, like Steve Jobs at Apple and Bill Gates at Microsoft and, you know, Yvonne Chouinard at Patagonia and Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield at Ben & Jerry's and Tom Stenberg at Staples and on and on and on. And one of the things that I noticed about the best of those companies then was that they had that quality that later wound wound up calling Mojo. You could feel it if you spent any time around them, if you went to visit them or you talked to their employees or their customers. And uh, my question and, and all the companies that... I chose to look at in the book in the all the small giants, also had that quality, and my question was where did it come from and what did they do to hold on to it, and I decided to answer that question by looking at the qualities that they had in common, and you know we we've, we've talked about a couple of them. One is that one about the leaders knowing who they were, what they wanted, and why. Mm, yeah. And another one was that the passion that they had. Not just for their own companies, but for what it was that their companies did. I mean, you know, again, we mentioned Fritz Maytag. Fritz, when he bought Anchor Brewing, he didn't know anything about beer. But, you know, you talk to him today and he will talk your ear off about, you know, how hops transformed the beer making industry because it turned out to be a preservative and how democracy was born in the breweries of northern Europe because that's where people gathered to talk about politics. Mm -hmm. He will go on and on with all of these sort of obscure things about beer making because he does have that passion for that and that passion is really, and he sort of set up the company in a way so that that the passion for the product sort of is felt by everybody who works there. Yeah, and
0: that's, that's where the culture of like being really close to your people or in some ways the culture of intimacy towards your employees yeah. and in some ways your relationship with customers and suppliers and the community really comes into play because like, that's really important essence of Mojo, of building a small giant.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as far as the communities went, it wasn't just that they gave back to their communities, although all of them did you know, do tremendous things for their communities. But it's also the community shaped the personalities of the company. I mean, with Anchor Brewing, you know, you can make great craft beer in places besides San Francisco, but it's almost impossible to imagine Anchor Brewing being anywhere but San Francisco. In fact, it's a San Francisco institution now and has been honored as a San Francisco institution. And it continues to be, I mean... Zingerman's is similar. It's an Ann Arbor institution and it's had a huge effect on the community of Ann Arbor. And, you know, Ann Arbor is where the University of Michigan is. And it's uh, sort of, Ari Weinzweig likes to say, it's more mid eastern. You know, I think of having grown up in the East Coast, I think of Michigan is the midwest and he said well ann arbor is sort of more like the middle east <laughs> i don't think he means the middle east the middle east yeah you know it has that quality and that quality is reflected in the company so you know you see that intimacy with the communities in which these companies are located the thing i noticed about their relationship with the customers was how personal they all strove to make those relationships as personal as possible, even companies that had, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of customers, really tried to develop uh, systems that would allow them to have the feeling, at least, of personal relationships. I mean, you know, Righteous Babe Records in Buffalo, New York, mm-hmm. was one of the companies in the book, and it was a company that was founded by a singer-songwriter named Annie DeFranco. It was very successful in the late 80s and early 90s. And all the big record labels wanted to uh, sign her up. And she decided she just didn't want to work for a big record label. And uh, so she started her own company in Buffalo, where she lived, and called it Righteous Babe Records. And, you know, when I visited them, you know, there were like stacks and stacks of letters and gifts that people had mailed in to Ani and mm-hmm. to the company. And uh, what was int- what struck me as interesting was that she and her partner, who was actually running the company, had decided that they would hire somebody so that anyone who wrote into Righteous Babe Records would receive a handwritten reply from somebody, you know, not from Ani, but from somebody whom they had hired to do that. And that had to do with their absolute commitment to making the relationship as personal as possible. You know, I saw that with suppliers as well. Mm -hmm. The thing about the employees, which was also very important, crucial in fact with all these companies, was that they followed a principle that actually I think was best articulated by Herb Keller, who was one of the founders of Southwest Airlines. And Southwest Airlines, you know, was Incredibly successful under his leadership. Mm-hmm. At one point, it was worth more than than the other top seven airlines combined. And when he was asked about what was the secret of his success, he he said, "Well, it's undoubtedly our culture, because our culture is what allows us to do all the things that we that really have made us successful. For example, they were able to turn planes around in record time. That was a signature thing for Southwest Airlines." And when he was asked, well, what is it about your culture that's different? And he said, well, what's different is is that we care for our people in the totality of their lives. Mm. In other words, not just as employees, but as human beings. And that was something that I found in all of the small giants. And for some of them, in fact, you could actually say that the customers didn't come first. It was the employees who came first. And, you know, although a lot of them felt that, well, it was customers and employees equally. The point was, is that, you know, after a company gets above a certain size, the people who actually have the relationships with the customers and the suppliers, and, you know, it's not the founder or CEO, mm-hmm. it's, it's people in the company. And if you really want to have a great relationships with your customers and your suppliers and your community. You need people who are as passionate about the business as you are. And part of that is that they know that they're working for a company that really cares about them. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was really what all these companies strove to do.
0: Yeah, this is great. Uh, Because there are two, it's almost like we could see uh, almost a blueprint of how these guys created these wildly successful businesses in some ways, in their own ways, and there's a common thread. A lot of it has to do with the people and caring for the people in and around the company, and also it has to do with commitment and the passion and the commitment to stay true to their values and their mission and their identity.
1: I will say this is that when I wrote the book, I came up with five qualities that the mojo seemed to come from. I found out that there was a sixth quality, which I should have written about, except I didn't know enough when I wrote the original edition mm-hmm. to write about it. So we've just recently, in the last month or so, come out with a 10th anniversary edition of Small Giants that includes two new chapters, one of which is on that quality that I missed, namely, what exactly is the financial structure and what are the financial necessity you know I had naively figured that if companies had been around and profitable for you know 15 20 25 years that was all that I needed to know about them that was turned out to be totally wrong and I discovered it the hard way because one of the companies in the book got into very serious trouble and its culture absolutely fell apart was a company called Rayel Precision Manufacturing in it's in St. Paul, Minnesota. And basically, you know, when you have a laptop, you open the top, mm-hmm. it doesn't fall right down. That's because of something called a constant torque hinge. And Rayel was the pioneer in constant torque hinges. And, you know, it was extremely successful with them and it had this extremely unique culture Unlike any, it was like probably the most democratic culture I'd ever seen. But right after the book came out, I was sort of in touch with, uh, or I tried to get in touch with uh, one of the CEOs, and it turned out that he had left the company. And then I contacted the other CEO, and he had retired and was now on the board. And I, I asked him, well, you know, what's going on here? he said, well, we're in a very serious situation. Uh, basically, we haven't been profitable. And we've had to sort of cut back. We've had to have people sort of take cuts and pay. Mm-hmm. And it's gone on for a long time. And And then what happened was that the board, the founders had res- had resigned from the board because they were getting older. And that left uh, outsiders on the board and the outsiders along with this uh, former co-CEO. And the outsiders had decided to get rid of the two CEOs and, and instead appoint someone else who was more of a traditional CEO. And, yeah, know, they
0: were they were not able to pay attention to the balance sheets and not keeping it healthy yeah, and not protecting well, their gross margins, right?
1: Well, what happened with them in particular was, it's a long story, but when they had moved When manufacturing of laptops had moved to Asia, they found themselves in an extremely competitive market, and they allowed their prices to go down. Well, when you allow your prices to go down, what you do little by little is that you eliminate your gross margin, and you cannot run a company without a gross margin, because basically, the gross margin is what pays for everything else that a company needs. Mm-hmm. and uh, the R&D, the salaries of a lot of people. Um, and uh, so they had got allowed themselves to get into that decision to the point where they were very dependent on laptop hinges, but they were losing money on all of them. And that's just unsustainable. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, there's a happy ending to the story, namely that, You know, things got a lot worse before they got better. And finally, they got a new CEO who came in who recognized what the problem was and and recognized that this one product that they were so dependent on was, in fact, killing them. And so he realized that that if you were going to save the company, you had to stop being reliant on that product. Right. That's not something you can do overnight. It takes, in his case, it took a year or more. Change, but he was successful in doing it, and uh, he was also successful in rebuilding the culture.
0: What happened? Why was he successful? Like, was he more of a financial
1: whiz at that point? No. Well, there were a couple of reasons. Number one, he was smart, and he was able to look at the situation realistically. You know, in Jim Collins's books, he good to greater. You know, any of his other books, he talks about the importance of being able to confront the brutal facts. And basically, the previous CEO had been delayed very, very long in confronting the brutal Mm -hmm. fact Mm -hmm. that this product...
0: So the previous CEO was not able to pay attention to the balance sheets consistently, not keep it healthy, and was not protecting the gross margins, while this new CEO was able to do that. And that's kind of what's a uh, small giant needs to be able to focus on? Is that, is that what
1: we're saying here? Yeah, well, that's it. What happened with Rayel particularly emphasized the gross margin issue. There was another company that I had written about called Rhythm & Hughes, which was a computer special effects company, probably one of the greatest ever. It wound up winning the Academy Award for its work on Life of Pi, you know, with the uh, boy and the tiger on the boat in these stormy seas, Mm -hmm. which was all done by computer special effects. They got the Academy Award for that 11 days after they filed for bankruptcy. So I had to go in and figure out, well, what happened to them? There, it wasn't a gross margin. I mean, eventually, it became a gross margin problem, but the real underlying problem was the industry had changed, and the business model that had been successful had allowed them to survive before, had become out of date, and the company hadn't changed mm. its business model. More interesting, and there was another one that really, you know, relates directly to the balance sheet. Which it was a company that would have been in the book if I'd known about them when I wrote it the first time. It was a pizza company, a fantastic pizza business outside Chicago. That you know they got into trouble for because of the balance sheet. The the mm. that, like most new entrepreneurs, the owner was you know, ignorant of finances when he started and in particular, he wasn't at all aware of the importance of keeping an eye on the balance sheet and making sure that it's healthy in the sense that you don't have so much debt that you can't pay off anymore, that you won't be able to pay it off. And When he got into trouble, he didn't really know why he was getting into so much trouble. Uh, he had various explanations that were wrong. But when he finally got the help he needed, he realized that the problem was that he'd taken on more debt than he could possibly uh, sustain and that he had to make some serious changes. Now, again, that one had a happy ending as well mm-hmm. because the the company, Nick's Pizza and Pub, had been such a great citizen of its community that when he... Sort of let out the word that they were in trouble and they might go out of business in a, a couple months, and he asked sort of his customers to, if they wanted to help, they could come by, they could help by, coming to the rescue of the business by, uh, just signing up to come and eat, uh, you know, buy pizzas, mm-hmm. and the community turned out in force. You know, their sales increased by a hundred percent for the next two months, and a lot of the customers began calling the local bank, which held some of the debt, and saying, you know, you've got to help these guys out. You've got to help these guys survive, and the bank responded. So it, it was actually a, a great story of, of the community literally coming to the aid of this business that they loved. And yeah, making sure it was preserved.
0: Yeah, and as ambitious entrepreneurs ourselves, I think the lesson for us is to make sure that we focus uh, not only on our commitment to be the best and our uh, passion and what we do in our relationships, but also on the balance sheets, on healthy margins, on healthy gross margins, and making sure that we're focusing on that as well because... If we don't, we could find ourselves in a situation like the pizzeria.
1: That's absolutely true. Yeah. You know, that's important. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's also interesting to look back over the last... I haven't also have an update chapter in the new edition where I look back over the last 10 years and see how the companies have changed. And, you know, obviously over a 10-year period, every company is going to change, particularly... A 10 year period as tumultuous as the one we've just been through, you know, with the Great Mm -hmm. Recession and everything. And also, you know, people get older. You get to a point, and, you know, my last book is actually called Finish Big, and it's about sort of the exit process. And every company, every entrepreneur, sooner or later exits their business. They may exit feet first, but they're going to (laughs) exit. And so. You know, that got to be the situation with a few of the owners in the book, Fritz Maytag for one, and they had to come up with a solution. Okay, what happens next? Mm -hmm. And they did. He did. So there were interesting stories about what happened with all the companies.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, There's definitely something to be said about thinking about the succession plans or thinking about the exit at some point, because that will happen, whether it means we exit the business or whether it means it's the end of our lives and someone else is going to take over. So there's so many reasons why that'll happen, but one day it will happen. Um But um this has been so much fun. This has been so much fun, Bo. So much great learning about how to build one of these small giants and how to continue on with the process of that. Um Tell us about what you're up to right now, what's exciting for you right now, what are your new projects, and how people can find you?
1: Well, I have, a, I do have a website. It's at Um I have, you know, the small giants uh, concept really resonated with a lot of people. And um, one of the things that happened, I was at Inc. You know, I'd been at Inc. for about 34 years or something. And Actually, my former editor at Inc. wound up at Forbes magazine, and he was there to sort of revive their coverage of small business and entrepreneurship. And one of the things, Forbes was doing a list of the best small companies, but he didn't like their criteria. He liked the criteria that I'd used in selecting the companies for small giants. And so he suggested to them that they change it and they make their annual list, basically a small giants list. And then, then he came to me and asked me if I would work on it with him. And I, I said, sure. So uh, basically, I, 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 we, we did one um, that appeared in February, which uh, last February, which was our, our first list of 25 companies that these were all companies that I had were not in the book, these were 25 companies that uh, really, they were small giants too. I mean, the, one of the things I realized in going through this is there are a hell of a lot more of these companies around than I ever imagined.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, uh, we're doing a new list actually right now. We're working on the one for
0: 2017.
1: That's we And we'll, we'll bring out another, uh, a new group of 25 companies um, and basically, what we want to do is to shine a spotlight on these companies and what they do, and how they do it, and how that they how do they meet the challenges that businesses face? How do they meet them? How are they different in the way that many other companies are? Um, this is exciting. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I'm I'm doing that, and I also, you know, as I mentioned, I I wrote another book. Uh, about the 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 final stage of mm-hmm. the process, and I have to say it was one of the most educational experiences for me that I've ever had working on that book, because it forced me to change a lot of the ideas. But maybe that's a subject for another day. I think, Monty.
0: Yeah, absolutely, that's a subject for another podcast interview at some point. Again, <laughs> sure. Yeah, sure. Um, well, Bo, this has been. An absolute joy. Thank you very much for your insights, your knowledge, and for sharing that with the world today. We have listeners from all around the world and I'm sure they have appreciated this tremendously.
1: So thank you. Thank you, Mani. I would suggest that your listeners go online and look up the small giants community, which is they can find at smallgiants.org. Absolutely. Um, what one of one of the things that the book that came out of the book? was that a lot of these companies decided that they wanted to get together and meet with each other and learn from each other. And so the small giants community wound up being formed and it's thriving right now. And, and actually there's a program that the, the community, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm not the person who, who started the community. It was started by other people, a guy who had his own small giant, um, but I, I've, I've sort of been supportive of them. And uh, the community actually has a new program out called the Small Giants Journey, which actually allows companies to learn directly from some of the companies that are really role models in the in these areas and uh, to actually go around and visit them. So that's definitely, if if you're interested in this, that's definitely something worth checking out. And you can Find out about it at the smallgiants.org website.
0: Definitely, smallgiants.org. Well, thank you very much, Bo. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will check it out as well. A lot of ambitious entrepreneurs here. So thank you again for all the knowledge, all the insights.
1: Thank you, Mani.
0: So my ambitious friends, I have a very important question for you. What is the single biggest indicator and predictor of success? Because in my reading of over 1,000 books, I have found out that there is one common thread, one common indicator that ties all of the greatest success stories in this world. And this is a factor that has been emphasized again and again and again in the greatest books ever written on the topic of accomplishing our goals. The greatest thinkers and achievers have all said the same thing from Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic philosopher 2,000 years ago, to the greatest UFC fighters of today, and from champion athletes like Babe Ruth and Michael Jordan to big-time entrepreneurs like Elon Musk. So here at 2,000 Books, we have created a 90-day course specifically on this topic where we summarize 40 of the greatest books ever written on this topic. So reading these books, reading these 40 books, can take you almost 250-plus hours And if you read one hour every day, Monday through Friday, every week, this reading can take you an year. But what we have done is we have summarized the knowledge from these books into daily 5-10 to minute bite-sized videos so that you can absorb a new idea or a couple of new ideas every single day and take action on them, take action on them, and build them over time over a period of 90 days. So come check out this course at 2000books.com slash tough, that's T-O-U-G-H, tough, or Text the word tough, T-O-U-G-H, to 44222 and get more information on this course. The course is now live and you can join at any time. And I look forward to seeing you on the inside of the course.